Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the unchanging gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Grant and Diana for leading us in worship. Brady is out this week, but I understand that next week Caroline will be joining Brady and Diana. For those who heard Caroline on Christmas Eve, you'll know what a blessing she is. So we look forward to that. There are so many reasons, saints, that we love to worship. One of them being that you and I are formed and fashioned for eternity. Every person you will ever meet is an eternal being. What makes that person a person, what makes them who they are, is eternal. They will never die. Oftentimes we don't think of it like that, do we? The shell that's known as our body holds who we are. But who you are is eternal. It will never die. Because of that, only that which is eternal, only that which points to the eternal, that which is connected to the eternal, truly satisfies the human yearning. Famed Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he once wrote, quote, this yearning for an eternal order, which God has planted in the heart of man, in the, in, in the inmost recesses of his being, in the core of his personality, is the cause of the indisputable fact that everything which belongs to the temporal order cannot satisfy man. He is a sensuous, earthly, limited, and mortal being, and yet is attracted to the eternal and is destined for it. Close quote. This is at the heart of why we, are, why we live in such an angry and a discontent world, because man is an eternal being, but they are doing his or her best to satisfy themselves with temporal things. They live intrinsically unsatisfied because we were not made for this. We weren't made to be satisfied with a passing world. One need only read the last words of some of the world's most wealthy and notable people on their deathbed to know this to be true. Socrates, last words, all, quote, all of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth, if only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail, perhaps some divine word, close quote. Sigmund Freud, an ardent atheist who spent his life studying human nature and the human psyche, Freud's dying words lamented, quote, the meager satisfaction that man can extract from reality leaves him starving. It's like putting diesel into a a gasoline engine, right? Eventually it'll detonate. It'll ruin your engine. It won't work because it's not made for that. Well, you and I are fueled by eternity. It's what drives every person. How might that change how we treat each other? How we love each other? How we value each other? Knowing that person is an eternal being. Every person to the least of society is an image bearer of their maker. They're formed and they're fashioned for worship. They're made for eternity. They're made only to be satisfied by that which points to the eternal. It's written on the heart of every man, woman, and child. So we pray that this yearning for eternity that's hardwired into everyone listening will drive us to the one who holds eternity in his hands. Living a life of worship in this temporary world That is just a preview of eternity. If you don't like coming to church, 
you won't much care for heaven. Fellowshipping with the saints, worshiping the Lord, learning to love him more, plumbing the depths of his word, that's what's waiting in heaven. If that does not appeal to you, pray that the Lord save you today. He'll give you a new heart with new affections. It will be your highest joy to do what we are doing right here this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we continued in our series titled Count the Cost. And today we'll mark part three of what will be a four-part series as we approach the end of Mark chapter 8. This has been a challenging series for many, your pastor included. Saints, I cannot preach these truths unless I've internalized them myself. I bear the conviction of spirit and high calling of discipleship right along with you as we behold the reality of the Christian life. A call that you will sadly not hear echoed from many pulpits in America today. It is a devastating gospel. A call for us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. A call for us to not run blindly or impulsively toward Jesus, but to soberly sit down and count the cost of this journey. We are reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 4, 28, 14, 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Jesus' message to those who would even dare to step to the line of following him is the opposite of any easy believism that pervades modern evangelicalism. That says, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, raise a hand, and you're a disciple of Jesus. Not hardly. Not hardly. Are you interested in following Jesus? Come pick up your instrument of your own death, your cross, and follow me on a death march. And it may be straight up the road to Calvary in an actual loss of life. So many are killed today around the world for their faith. Or it may simply be dying to self, crucifying yourself daily, your plans, your ambitions, your comforts, rejecting the lure of the world, daily crushing the idols that our hearts are constantly producing because we have a new master. Slaves that are marked and branded by the one who owns us. And yes, he is a good master, but he is master all the same. A disciple of Christ is not their own. Their will is to bend to the will of the Father. It was such in the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't it? where our Savior demonstrated for us what submission to the Father's will looked like. The Christian life is no longer our own. Our life is no longer our own. It has a command and it has a charge placed upon it. There is a burden. But beloved, the question is not whether or not you will accept the burden. The question is, what will that burden be? Many will remember Jesus' entreaty in Matthew eleven thirty. That my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember that? There is a burden to follow Jesus. You might be tempted to say, well, I, I know we're on part three of a series here telling us about the burden. To pick up my cross. To count the cost. Well, that doesn't sound light or easy to me. But saints, that's because we don't see the whole picture. We laid out last week in last week's message, not whether we would be slaves, but that we are all slaves. The question is, who is your master? And so it is with the burden. Who sets the burden of the slave? The master. 
and we see Jesus saying something that sounds contradictory here. Pick up your cross and follow me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, which is it? Am I to pick up a heavy splintered cross? Am I to drag an instrument of my own death up a hill? Or is your yoke easy and light? Well, it all depends on what you're comparing it to. What are the only two masters? We are either a slave of Christ or we are a slave of sin. That's it. Every person you will ever meet in your life is serving one of those two masters. And Jesus is showing us that sin is a very, very hard taskmaster. Even as we struggle under the weight of our cross, even as we struggle with that, every promise of God is undergirding us, pushing us to the finishing line. Great and precious promises are ours to lay hold of as the splinters dig into our back. We have brothers and sisters who weep and rejoice with us. A great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. We have all of that. But what of those who serve another master? What about those in the clutches of sin that are weighted under the incredible load of a devilish taskmaster? Have you ever met somebody maybe on the street or in a homeless shelter? You can just tell that life has been hard on them. They've toiled under the weight of hard living and sin, and they're but a shell of the man or woman that they once were. Someone in the bondages maybe of habitual sin, of addiction or abuse. Tell me, whose burden is heavier? Whose burden is heavier? Be compassionate toward those who live in sin around you. They toil under a vicious and a brutal taskmaster who never rests, and he never gives his slaves rest. Let us remember when fostering charity in our heart that a sinner is also a sufferer under the most terrible load. A sinner is also a sufferer. So yes, we can say, take up your cross and that burden is light because in comparison to the taskmaster of sin, it is very light indeed. Not because the cross is light or less painful, but because of the one who promises to walk alongside us, the promises that give us strength. Imagine being loaded down with no hope, with no hope. That's almost every person you will meet in your day-to-day -day life. So see them with the eyes of Christ. A part of counting the cost from our series meant that we are to deny ourselves. back in verse 34, right? Meaning that our identity is gone. We're not denying something, we're denying someone. We are crucified with Christ. We're a new creation. We were a child of wrath, Scripture calls us. Now we are a child of God. And after denying ourselves, being called to take up our cross and follow with Jesus in part one of our series, part two last week, and now three and four, saints are really a series of explanations. They're a series of explanations because this devastating gospel that Jesus is laying out, it really makes no sense. It makes no sense. Take up a brutal instrument of Roman execution. That makes no sense to these people. And that is hard for us to grasp because of the beauty we behold in the cross. But it's not so for these people. This is a raw and a devastating gospel. To bid thee come and die was to clear out a room. It made no sense to these people, not to the crowd we see present, nor even completely to the disciples. 
So last week was the first in the series of explanations for this seemingly morbid gospel call in verse 34. Well, the first explanation came in verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, hang on, pastor. I thought you said this was the first explanation. I'm even more confused now because what Jesus says here in verse 35 is a paradox. It's counterintuitive. If I give something away, I don't possess it anymore. If I lose something, I certainly haven't saved it. Yet it's not so. We saw two lives in verse 35. First, a life that needs to be rescued. And second, a life that needs to be lost. First, a life that needs to be saved and a life that needs to be abandoned. What is Jesus saying? What is the life that needs to be saved? What is true life? What exchange is Jesus saying is required for those who would deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him? Well, Jesus is speaking on two levels here. He's speaking in the eternal and he is speaking in the temporal. It's our eternal life we seek to save. That's what matters. Our life in the here and now is a vapor. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. Now, we thank God for the blessing he gives us during our short time on this blue orb called Earth. But in light of eternity, Paul says in Philippians, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. Everything about this life, however wonderful it may be, and we do enjoy many blessings, they pale in comparison to knowing Christ, to spending eternity with him. We hold our life here on this earth with an open hand. Paul tells us that he suffered the loss of all things and that he counted them rubbish so that I might gain Christ. What a marvelous exchange. But we need our eternity glasses on to see it. Our efocals to bring it into view. Christ must be precious to us above all else. Oh, that we might possess him. We don't desire eternity because of the beauty of heaven and the peace and the joy. We desire heaven because Jesus is there. If every other aspect of heaven was gone and all that remained was Jesus, it would be still our highest desire and affection. Last week, Jesus closed verse 35 saying, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus makes a distinction of sacrifice. You're to lose your life here in two arenas for my sake and for the gospel's sake. So one could rightly split this into the internal and the external for my sake and the gospel's sake. So what's he saying for my sake? This is our personal devotion. This is our drive to be consumed in mind and spirit with the precepts of Christ, to be identified with Christ, to share in his sufferings. You're losing your life, your temporary pleasures, your comforts, your plans, your ambitions, maybe even your physical life. You lose all because you identify with Jesus. And we see the numbers growing on the calculator as we count the cost. Internal loses his life for my sake. Finally, external for the gospel's sake. What should the outworking of that inner devotion be? An inner devotion that remains inside is not true devotion. We said last week that personal devotion should lead to practical duty. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news, it comes out of you. It's poured out of you onto a hurting and dying and hostile world. And most will hate you for it. 
the price you pay for the gospel, the cost of the message that flows out of you, largely depend on where God has placed you in time and history. It may simply mean loss of family relationships, loss of friends, jobs, ridicule. For others, it will command the highest price. But a great and precious promise, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What a promise. As we move on in our text again, a a lengthy introduction was given because again, these, these verses are so inextricably linked with one another. After dropping a devastating bill on the cost of discipleship in verse 34, we see these cascading explanations and all of them hang on the previous explanation. As we'll see, today's text is a further expansion on last week. So with that, let's look at our text. Mark 8, 36 through 37. Mark 8, 36 through 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are undeniably dependent on your spirit this morning. Lord, we need you to apply these words to our lives as we need to hear them. Lord, we pray that the seed that is planted falls on good ground and that it brings forth crops, Lord, 30, 60, and 100-fold this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, around the year 1000, officials of the emperor Otho opened the great king's tomb. And strewn about inside were immense amounts of various treasures of all sort. But that was not what was the most impressive. Inside Charlemagne's tomb, they saw an amazing sight. The skeletal remains of the king Charlemagne were seated on a throne, and his crown still sat on his skull. And there was a copy of the Gospels lying in his lap, with his bony finger resting on the text, For what does it profit a man? to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Jesus has posed to his hearers a rhetorical question, a question that's meant to build on the explanations that we've received so far for this completely foreign and this devastating message that Jesus has laid at their feet. Now, how do we know that Jesus means for us to connect all of these sayings in verse 34 all the way to verse 38. Well, look very quickly down at your Bibles. What's the first word of verse 35? And verse 36. And verse 37 and verse 38. It's a word which we've given a bit of attention to, isn't it? Four. We see four used four times. Now, as we we open with our first verse here in Mark 8, 36, how do we begin? Four. Verse 36, remember that this is an explanatory term. It's a connecting term, much like the word therefore. Jesus is giving even further explanation. Now, I harp on this a bit because we need to see this engagement of Jesus with the crowd and the disciples, not just in its individual parts, because we're broken up into a series here, but we need to see it as a whole, in its very much connectedness. We need to see the big picture. We are counting the cost the full cost of being a disciple. We've used a very difficult analogy up to this point to explain what Jesus is doing. 
the breaking of spiritual bones, but for two purposes. Many will be as the rich young ruler, which we'll read about in only a short time in Mark 10. I'm very excited for that. Jesus is giving him a very similar call of a devastating gospel. And recall how this man responded. But he was deeply dismayed by these words, by Jesus' words. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus had broken his bones, but it would be unto his judgment. Yet for true disciples, Jesus was breaking these bones as a good doctor would to reset them. I wish I could get away from the analogy, but here we are. And the process continues, especially for us today, as we live in a time of immeasurable wealth and prosperity, more than any other time ever in history today. We are saturated in society with a simple message. Accumulate unto yourself. You deserve it. Whatever that looks like is going to look different for the person of meager means all the way up to the Wall Street tycoon. But the spirit remains the same. Keep accumulating. Build bigger. Build better. We have an entire marketing and advertising profession that is dedicated to this very thing. And as we've highlighted in the past, we are products of our culture, whether we believe it or not. It seeps in, even unconsciously. The world and everything in it wants us to love it. Whatever it happens to be, we have your God replacement of choice waiting. If your heart can desire it, we can make it. Well, the rhetorical question posed by Jesus in his text today is as countercultural as one could possibly be. And not because Jesus was a, a hippie or a revolutionary, but because the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. 1 Corinthians 3.19. The world system that is built around idolatry and accumulation is the spirit of Antichrist. These are irreconcilable worldviews. Now, as we said earlier in the series, we cannot hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. It's a fool's errand. And in the end, you wind up with neither. We either lose our life and gain Christ or we lose both. Let's look closer at our text here. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man? Pause there. When we say profit, Jesus is asking, what good is it? What have you added to yourself? The entire world tells you that accumulation, that heaping pleasures upon yourself, is, what's it all about, is what it's all about. That's what it means to profit. You know, a very good friend of mine, he hosts a TV program. And he once had the opportunity to interview a warlock for the Church of Satan very high up in the ranks. And this warlock was asked by the, by the interviewer if he could summarize the Satanic Bible in one sentence, what would it be? He replied without hesitation, enjoy life in the here and now. That's the core of Satanism. Not animal sacrifice or every Hollywood embellished scene that you can think of. Nope, enjoy life in the here and now. Embrace the carnal. Heap unto yourself pleasures. That is the self-described core and synopsis of Satanism. That should shock us. That should rattle us. How close are we to the enemy's camp? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. Of course, no one can gain the whole world. Our Lord is using an extreme to show us a point. 
all that you see around you. You could have it all. You could own it all. What would that gain you if you forfeit your soul? Saints, what we're looking at here is a radical reformation of our value system. What do you value? What are you taught to value? Does the world and its system tell us to value our soul? Does it tell us to value our soul? Of course not. Just the opposite. The devil has been allowed sway over the value systems of the world, and they are inherently anti-Christ. The world consists of all the pursuits, the pleasures, the purposes, the people, and the places where God is not wanted. Far from merely telling you to not value your soul to the extent that you value the world and its comforts. No, the world system goes farther than that, and it says you don't even possess a soul. It's part and parcel of the greatest lie of Satan, that he doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, then this whole thing is a sham. You have no eternal soul. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Heap upon yourself all the pleasures that you can in this lifetime, because this is all there is. You might think that sounds like classic humanism or, or atheism to you, when in reality it's straight from the Satanic Bible. That's their credo. That is their message. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This runs against the grain of every fiber in our culture. Every advertisement against the very zeitgeist, meaning the the spirit of our age. But saints, our bones must be broken of this and reset. Our value system needs to be made new if we are in Christ because we are all affected by our culture. And the underlying lie behind it all, behind that call to heap upon ourselves, to eat, drink, and be merry, to accumulate and accumulate, the lie behind that, this is all there is. This is all there is. That's the big lie. And behind every sin is a lie. And in so believing that lie, we put the peril, we put in peril the most precious thing we possess. Our soul. Our soul. Well, at this point, we'd be remiss if we didn't cover that topic of what is a soul. How many of us have a biblical understanding of this concept? Now, we might know uh, the spiritualized, perhaps the Hollywood concepts of it, but what is a soul? If we're to prize it so highly above all worldly pursuits, might we know exactly what it is? Well, the human soul is created by God. It's not your mind. It's not your heart. It's not your spirit. George MacDonald once said, quote, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body, close quote. In other words, personhood is not based on having a body. A soul is what is required. Repeatedly in the Bible, people are referred to as souls. If I were to have an emergency on on an aircraft that I was flying, air traffic control would ask me how many souls I have on board. A soul is what actually makes personhood. My soul is the only thing about me that is eternal. We mentioned at our opener that every person you will ever meet is an eternal being. What makes that person a person? What makes them who they are? Their soul is eternal. They will never die. Every person who has ever lived in history, from Adam and Eve, what made them the person they are, their soul is still alive and will forever be alive. That's a sobering thought. It's an awesome thought. It's it's terrifying and it's beautiful at the same time. When considering the state of the soul, the great J.C. Ryle, he writes, quote, any man may lose his soul. He cannot save it. 
Christ alone can do that. But he can lose it and that in many different ways. He may murder it by loving sin and cleaving to the world. He may poison it by choosing a religion of lies and believing man-made superstitions. He may starve it by neglecting all the means of grace and refusing to receive into his heart the gospel. Many are the ways that lead to the pit. Close quote. The world is going to reach out and grab at your soul in ways that are individual. Wherever you are individually vulnerable, the disciples were certainly vulnerable. Are there any examples in history of people profiting from the gospel? Making money off of Christianity? The disciples were at risk as well, each in their own way. Even allowing our garment to be tainted by the world does damage to our soul. It can sicken and weaken it. Desiring the things of the world hinders our prayer life. In speaking to believers, James in his epistle, he puts his finger right on it. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Why? That you may spend it on your pleasures. Spend it on your pleasures. This is a love of the world and what it has to offer. It's taking preeminence. And James is telling us that the love of the world cuts us off from our communication with God. This is a double-minded man. He's actually praying, isn't he? He's praying that he might fill more of his lust. He's asking God in his prayer life to give him another idol. Of course, that's madness. But we do that. We do that. John tells us in his first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, to be fair, saints, there are dangerous ditches that run along both sides of keeping ourselves unstained from the world and away from loving pleasures, as it were. The ditch on the left is the one we've been speaking to up to this point embracing and desiring the things of this world over the gift of Christ, choosing temporary pleasures over eternal joy. Now, the second is far less prevalent today, but it is just as soul damaging. On the other side is the ditch of legalism. And legalism brings guilt. They're roommates that are joined at the hip. They now accuse and scorn you of living with any pleasures, any vacation, any nicety that you enjoy is somehow sin. Saints, both are deadly ditches. They're deadly ditches. So how do we know? How do we know if a possession or an activity is over the line, is loving the world? One sentence you'll often hear from the pulpit and a foundational pillar of biblical counseling. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Each person is tempted in their own way, and we must fight whatever front that comes on. Where is Satan tempting you? Where does pride fill your heart? Where is the chink in your armor that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life can seep in? Where does the world have access to your life? I remember some years ago, maybe four years or so before ministry, I had bought a brand new BMW. Oh, I love that car. I love that car. I found myself walking over to the window in the house just to look at it, just to look at it out in the driveway. It had all the bells and the whistles and had the heads up display projected on the windshield and fast as all get out. I would look for excuses to do grocery runs. I don't think Don went to the grocery store for a month. 
I love this car. One day I was walking by the window and I looked out at the car and I stopped in my tracks. The weight of the Holy Spirit sat on me and I knew the car had to go. This car occupied a place in my affections that are reserved for the Lord and for people. It had to go. Now it was brand new. I still remember losing $15,000 giving it back to the dealership. I had to. It was a chink in my armor. It was a stumbling block. It was dangerous for my soul. Now, a fancy pants BMW might not be damaging for your soul. You may not give it a second thought. Great, be free. Is a $100,000 sports car a sin? No, but it can be. But it can be. Watch our two ditches here, beloved. Love of the world on one side and legalism on the other. Both ditches will bring harm to the soul. So be soft of heart. Listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and whatever it happens to be. And we don't put that on our brothers or sisters. We don't bind their conscience. This is your conviction. They may not struggle with it. You know, I read about two women in a Mennonite community where head coverings are sometimes worn. And one of the women, she had very beautiful hair. And she found that she had allowed pride to enter in about having the most beautiful hair. And so she embraced the head coverings to kill her pride about her crown of glory. And another woman in the same congregation found that the head covering was a source of spiritual pride for her, showing the world how holy she was. She abandoned the head covering to kill her spiritual pride. Now, I give you these examples, beloved, because we are all going to be tempted and we're going to be pulled in different ways. And we will call sin what the Bible calls sin. But for the Christian, the attacks and the lures of the world are far more subtle and they require soft and obedient hearts to listen. Even now, I pray the Holy Spirit is showing us areas in our life where we have loved the world, where our soul is suffering violence by that love. It has to go. And this war may be big decisions. This may mean big moves for you. But most of the time, saints, it's a hundred smaller choices. It's a hundred smaller choices. What's stealing your time? What's stealing your affection? What's stealing your finances? These are all ways the world system crawls into our life and commits violence on our souls. And the devil is a thief. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy even our souls if he were able. Now something's probably coming to mind for you even as we speak that needs to go. Listen to that still small voice. We're protecting the most valuable thing we have, our eternal soul. What you think is a small or an insignificant game of footsie with the world will never stay small or insignificant. Feed a desire and it will grow and consume. A famous Wall Street tycoon was asked how much more he needed to be satisfied. And he simply replied, more, more. We are creatures that are designed to continually worship. That's what we will do in eternity. If we worship the material, it will never be enough because we must continue to worship at the altar. It's how we are designed. Eternal worship is our destiny, whether it be material goods or self-worship or the one true God. It will consume you. Queen Elizabeth I, wealthy beyond all measure, 
On her deathbed, her last words cried, all my possessions for one moment of time. There's that worship again. There it is. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is not an isolated teaching by our Lord. We are thick-headed people, at least I know I am. I need to hear it ten different times in ten different ways, and I'm still going to suffer command amnesia concerning what the Lord requires. And I'm going to suffer promise amnesia on what the Lord has said he will do. But Jesus reiterates this principle this morning many times throughout the Gospels. Most notably comes to mind is the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 15 through 21. We can put this up on the screen. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Why is this man a fool? Because he's made a terrible exchange. Huge stores of wealth. To what end? But what is it about this accumulation? What is it about gaining the whole world, as in our text today, that is itself so damning? Why was this man's soul required of him this night? Meaning your soul is lost. What is the actual sin? What do the charges in God's eternal courtroom read? They'll read from Romans 1. For this man loved and served the creation instead of the creator. This man's affections were for the things that God has made, not for God himself. He loved the gift, not the gift giver. He's an idolater. God will not sit alongside our possessions, waiting for us to call on him when a situation that our wealth and our possessions can't fix. He doesn't share his throne. God doesn't do roommates. Beloved, this is the cost of discipleship. We cannot love God and love the world. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. When you cling to something for dear life, beloved, is it with one hand? Or is it with two? Are we sojourners passing through this world? Citizens of heaven? Or are we quite content and comfortable in this world? Beloved, there should be a holy unease and restlessness in a believer. Are we content in Christ? Yes. We rest in Christ? Yes. But we are not home yet. You know that feeling you have when you've been on a 10-hour road trip and you're only a half an hour from home? Right? Getting restless, want to get there? Because this road is not my home. My home is my home. You were created for Jesus. You were created to love him and be with him. Back to our text, verse 37. Verse 37. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
Warren Buffett cannot buy a single minute of time. Bill Gates cannot put off eternity for a single second. What then will you give in exchange for the most precious commodity? If earth itself was yours, from the Rockies to the plains, the vast oceans, London, Paris, Rome, the pyramids, the Great Wall of China, all yours, could you give it in exchange for your soul? No, it doesn't even come close. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, let them weigh their gold in the scales of death and see how much they can buy therewith from the worm and the grave. Death comes and wealth cannot bribe him. Hell follows and no golden key can unlock its dungeon. And do you want to know the richest irony of all? The richest irony of all. That these things that we toil and we labor for, this wealth or possessions that we accumulate with such intensity that it's all his anyway. It's all his to begin with. And what's he going to do with it? Second Peter says he's going to burn it all up. The elements are going to melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Here we are striving for something that isn't even ours to begin with that the owner has said he's going to burn up anyway. And people exchange their souls for it. Their souls for it. Famous evangelist and preacher George Whitfield, he recorded in one of his journals a most absurd scene one day. He observed a cart that was filled with men who were being taken to execution. These criminals were all being carted off to the gallows. And as he got closer, he heard a commotion in the cart. And to Whitfield's amazement, the men were arguing about who got to sit on the preferred side of the cart. They were talking like children that were jockeying for the best seat in the minivan. These men, on their way to execution, were arguing about what seat they got. We are all marching toward eternity. We're all in the cart. And most of the world is bickering about getting the most comfortable seat, wasting their time trying to pad the cushion. The Christian is to pay that no mind. The disciple of Christ who has counted the cost of following Jesus has set their eyes toward heaven. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer to our Lord Nothing. It profits me nothing. And I have nothing to give in exchange. Before us lies nothing in the world or everything in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we began this Lord's Day with complete dependency on you and your Holy Spirit to do its work. Lord, that this preacher can't do, that no human can do. Lord, you form and fashion the heart. We ask, Lord, in each one of our lives today that you cause this message to go down ever so deep. Because, Lord, we know that it stands in opposition to everything we hear and see in the world. Lord, we ask that you would keep those who are not with us. We know that many are ill, and we ask that you would bring them back to us soon. Until we meet again, in Jesus' mighty name we pray.